I, uh, everyone, you are listening to Gather. You're listening to Gather. Together. Gather. This is Amy Salamanis, and this is Gather with Minerva's Books and Ideas, where we'll explore the lives of books and the ideas they ignite and illuminate. Hey, it's Amy. Welcome to episode five of Gather. We've come to the second last, the penultimate episode of season one, themed adaptation. Well, it's something we've all become very familiar with thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic, twisting, turning, pivoting, learning things anew. So here we explore this theme through a few different angles, adapting to circumstance, adapting across art forms and across languages and senses, and giving you space to ponder along the way. We'll hear the beautiful music of Gellaray Poor and her garden quartet throughout the episode too. We have three fabulous book seeds that feed into the guests today. Fiona Murphy's must-read memoir, The Shape of Sound, published this year by text. And we hear her reading from the book that explores her journey with deafness and provide a linked video interview that I did with deaf filmmaker and lecturer Ramus McRae with Auslan and Captions, a new experience for me. We think about how deaf and hard-of-hearing people have to adapt to the world every day and also bring us amazing creativity and ask how we can adapt to be more accessible as allies. Then from 2017 is Odette Collada's enthralling Drawing Sibylla, which explores the real and imagined lives of Australia's women writers of the past, with Stella Miles Franklin at the book's heart. We talk to playwright and director Christine Davey about her stage adaptation of Franklin's My Brilliant Career and the effects of the pandemic on this production. Finally, from 2020 is Melody Moezi's The Rumi Prescription and other books I've been devouring to learn about Persian poetry. This is a memoir in poetry, you might say, and we talk with our featured artist, musician Gellaray Poor, about her life in music and how it's been inspired by her Persian culture. For our creative segment, Things Found in Books, we'll enjoy a brand new piece created by Gellar for this episode. Woohoo! At this point, I'd like to give a shout out to Ballarat Libraries, where I now work casually and also borrow lots of books, of course, including these three, which I found like friends awaiting me on the shelves. Thank you to all libraries. And for more book love, always, for our indie book feature this episode, we chat to Brad at Ballarat's The Independent Bookstore and the linked Shoreline Publishing and hear how they help adapt writers' ideas into fully published products for sale in their beautiful shop. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. As a cross-art form creator myself, I've always been interested in adaptation. I did my honours thesis many years back around the question of how a book can be staged and experienced theatrically, and I created a stage version of one of my favourite books, Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities. It used live music, visual art, projection, and that seems a bit twee now. The premise was three women attending a book club dedicated to their shared love of Calvino. Yes, I am a nerd. I you didn't know that already. And I think what I called their communal dreaming of the cities described in the book. I wrote this song with Julian that the actors performed on stage, inspired by the book, and the line, Go and grow in lightness. I love playing with the possibilities and crossover of different art forms and their different languages to tell stories. Hope you liked that, recorded in our tiny bedroom in Coburg over a decade ago. Now I am, as I hope all of you are too, always learning, always adapting and expanding our hearts and minds. With thanks to Creative Victoria's support of these last few episodes of Gather Season 1, I'm excited to be doing work to make the podcast more accessible. A work in progress, so do bear with me or feel free to send me any thoughts. Through Arts Access Victoria, I was connected with the awesome Ramus McRae, a deaf filmmaker, Auslan lecturer and general legend in the deaf community, who has also been part of putting on the Flow Festival of Deaf Arts recently, where I got to discover lots of great new artists, and you should too. Ramus's first language is sign language, first Lithuanian, where he was born, and now also Australian, known as Auslan. I got to interview him via Zoom with an interpreter, so don't miss that as well over at minervasbooks.com. Ramus is a bit of a joker, and I just wanted to give you a little taste here via the voice of interpreter Paul Houston. So, with that, I have a sign name uh, for Ramus. Deaf people have sign names. They're important. 
Um, the sign name, you may think, well, that looks like a wiggle sign. It's not. I'm not a wiggle. Okay. It's Ramus. And I'm coming to you from the lands of Nam. Now, I actually was born not in Australia. Some people may think I look like an Aussie. Are you related to Ned Kelly? You're a Ned Kelly lookalike. Well, I'm not. I may look like an Aussie, but I wasn't born in Australia. I actually was born in Lithuania, uh, northeastern Europe. If you're unsure about your geography, okay, if you can visualize Sweden, we're across the sea from Sweden or a neighbor to Russia, to its west. So I grew up in a family of deaf people. My parents are both deaf. So go and check that out and stay tuned for more on transcriptions and other goodies we're working on. I also had the pleasure of reading our book seed, The Shape of Sound, by Fiona Murphy. For many years, she was compelled to hide her deafness, adapting to the world around her, and the description of exhaustion she'd feel at the end of the day from the sheer attention given to listening felt all through her body. The book is an amazing exploration of Murphy's journey, through career choices, injury, and her relationship with her deafness even accidentally joining a stand-up comedy workshop designed to empower people with disabilities. This bit was gold. She's a poet and essayist too, a recent piece being Interpreting the Pandemic, and I highly recommend checking out her work. Luckily for us, she has allowed us to include a reading here, which was originally recorded for Westwards, an organisation celebrating artists from the greater Western Sydney area, so a big thanks to them. Here's Fiona. Hi, my name is Fiona Murphy. I'm a deaf poet and essayist based in Western Sydney. I grew up in Bankstown and I went to school in Sefton and Lidcombe and I'm really proud to be able to contribute to the West Words YouTube channel. I think there's a lot of really exciting writing that's coming out of Western Sydney and it's such a thrill to be a part of that. My debut memoir, The Shape of Sound, is out now through text publishing And it's about my experience of growing up with hearing loss. I was born profoundly deaf in my left ear. And in my late 20s, early 30s, I was diagnosed with otosclerosis, which is a condition that is causing the bones in my ear to harden. And I'm progressively losing uh, my residual hearing. For most of my life, I kept my deafness a secret. It was something I was ashamed of and I didn't want to inconvenience anyone. Um, And I also didn't want to be um, thought to be deaf and dumb. So I spent a lot of my life uh, passing as somebody with hearing, uh, complete hearing. And uh, that's been really challenging. And a lot of the time I hid my confusion in conversations and I kind of downplayed whenever I was lost or overwhelmed um, with uh, noisy environments. Unfortunately, this is a pretty common um, kind of experience with hearing loss. Um, And it's something that I hope to see change with more and more deaf writing being published and released in the world. Uh, Today I'm going to be reading from the chapter in sound from my memoir. It's about when I'm in my mid-20s and I try hearing aids for the first time, uh, which is a pretty incredible experience. Okay, I'll read now. Why now? The audiologist asked after I sat down. I've heard the technology has changed a lot, I replied. She nodded as she delicately measured my ears. Your ears are the size of a child's. I'll have to order the smallest pair. Two weeks before the appointment, I had typed one deaf ear into Google. I'd recently met several people with hearing aids who were ecstatic about them. It's just like before, they said. Actually, probably even better than before. Better, better, better. The beat of better drummed in my head. Had a new type of hearing aid been invented? Something smaller, faster, slicker, something that could make me better. The search engine suggested that instead of one deaf ear, I must be looking for unilateral deafness. I casually scrolled through the search results, expecting to find brand names of hearing aids, but recoiled when I read the impact of unilateral deafness. Irritability. Social isolation, jumpiness, frequent headaches. 
One of the entries described people with unilateral deafness as often misdiagnosed with ADHD and suffering from, quote, chronic interpersonal communication difficulties. Their body language and mannerisms awkward or unusual as they stare at other people's mouths or tilt their heads frequently in an almost bird-like manner. As I read through the list, each dot point collided with a memory, feeling frantic with confusion during conversations, becoming swamped with fatigue in a crowded room, the shrill headaches that took days to shake, the grip of tension I felt whenever I walked through crowds. I pictured my head bobbing along to conversations, pecking at words without breaking eye contact. Bile racing up my midline, I kept reading. People with unilateral deafness are often perceived as boorish, domineering, socially awkward and evasive. The descriptors seemed like neat euphemisms. Memories are being called cold, robotic, unrelenting, calculating and unfeeling reared up. Unlike during my hypochondriac moments, I was now confronted by a clinical description. Why did I ever think that I could pass as hearing? My feelings of unease were no longer self-contained. I immediately booked an appointment at the closest audiology clinic, only a 20-minute walk away. I had to wait two weeks before things could get better. By then, the list had become a subsonic hum, reverberating through me each time I looked at someone's lips or tilted my head to hear better. You are boorish, awkward, evasive. The beat of better changed to a dull drone. Broken, broken, broken. During the fortnight before my appointment, I stared at advertisements for hearing aids. In one, the text beneath a photograph of a man holding the hand of a much younger woman said, My midlife crisis is obvious. My hearing aid is not. The technology described as discreet. Perhaps my secret would be mine to keep. And that's from my memoir, The Shape of Sound. In it, I also describe the process of becoming a part of the deaf community and learning Ausland, which was a life-changing experience to go from being so ashamed of my hearing loss to discovering it's something I could be proud of and excited and open about. Um, One in six Australians have some uh, hearing loss health concern, be that Um, deafness or tinnitus uh, amongst a range of other issues so it's incredibly common and more than likely that you know somebody in your life with a hearing health issue Um, my book covers a whole range of ways that you can communicate more clearly with people with hearing health concerns and be more empathetic to understanding what it's like to live in a body that can't hear as well as other bodies and that this can be a proud and exciting thing. Thanks so much for having me. My big heartfelt thanks to Fiona for writing this beautiful book. Also to my guest, Ramus McRae, and to all who invite us on the journey of learning about accessibility and in discovering the amazing creativity in the deaf and disabled world. Thank you. We move now to the world of Miles Franklin and theatrical adaptation in the time of COVID and the book see Drawing Sibylla by Odette Collada. This magical book was the winner of the 2016 Dorothy Hewitt Award for an unpublished manuscript and was published in 2017 by University of Western Australia. This was one of those books I tore through in a day, spellbound by the rich writing, each chapter placing you in the world of a different era, style and woman's experience of writing. We're like in the yellow wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Writing is an act often challenged or forbidden. This is the thread that ties the book together, peeling back the layers of wallpaper and revealing the talented women hidden beneath. This is a book of intertextual layers, described by the award judges as providing the reader with a tremendously original and imaginative set of pictures about the ideas of creativity and using language to make stories over and over again. This book is in fact adapted from Collada's PhD and we use extensive research into a creative feast, mixing fact and fiction, real and imagined. 
The pluck of Miles Franklin's character, Sibylla Melvin, and of Franklin herself, has won over heart since it was published in 1901. We're choosing a writing life, a brilliant career, in place of accepting a rich, handsome suitor, is presented as such. I am given to something that a man never pardons in a woman. You will draw away as though I were a snake when you hear it. So now we meet Christine Davy, an award-winning actor, writer and director, and head of Skin of Our Teeth, a Geelong-based theatre company dedicated to presenting exciting, exhilarating and egalitarian theatre, new works, adaptations and classics. When I spoke to her, she was two weeks out from submitting her PhD, which sounded super interesting, practice-led and about making scripts, screen or plays more dynamic, beyond just text on a page with memes and images and notes, adapting scripts into living works. Look out for it to have a read. Here she is. My name is Christine Davey and I own and operate a small, very small independent theatre company called Skin of Our Teeth Productions, which is based in Geelong and surrounds. Um, but we've we've also done work at, we did a performance of Midsummer Night's Dream at the Otway Fly and we were, of course, scheduled to do a beautiful regional tour this year of um, our production of My Brilliant Career which, of course, every piece of that has had to be dismantled because of COVID. As a practitioner, I've sort of been, yeah, sort of doing this for for many, many decades now. Um, I've worked both here and overseas. I um, have two bachelor's degrees. I have an MA in a master's uh, from VCA and in screenwriting and creative writing, and I'm about two weeks away from submission for my PhD. It's just, you know, it's that, that last hill is always the hardest one to climb. What led you to adapt My Brilliant Career for the Stage? How did you approach it? I just always enjoyed it as a novel and I think everybody's very familiar with the film probably and um, I think it's still a really good film. Like it stands up really well, I think. And, again, just because I'm very interested in kind of age and gender representation, the fact that, that Stella Miles Franklin wrote that novel when she was 18 just still just blows me away. You know, for that I would put her in, you know, the fabulous company of Mary Shelley the fact that these women kind of were writing this incredible stuff at that age and if they were men, they would have had a very different career trajectory. Just a fact. So, yeah, so that was – and then I thought, oh, it's – because of my company is also kind of dedicated to new works and adaptations, we're also always interested in the things that obviously are going to be either new or adapted from original sources that are – and again, from a purely mercenary point of view, not going to cost us an arm and a leg in royalties. So that's why um, one of the reasons. And also, I just thought, oh, you know, well, this is fun. And because it's actually written in the first person, it's kind of easier to do. Like the same as I did an adaptation of uh, Jane Eyre a couple of years earlier, the same kind of thing. Because it's written in the first person, it's actually much easier to adapt to a theatrical setting because you've got the kind of inbuilt narrator already there. So that was one of the reasons. And just because it's got interesting characters and I just thought, how can I kind of do this in a, I know that you didn't get to see it, Amy. Hopefully when we do it again next March, you'll get to see. It's a very kind of Brechtian style. It's a very kind of epic theatre style in that, you know, where we're not relying on sets and um, everybody's on stage the whole time. You know, it's kind of a very rolling kind of fast-paced um, thing. So that was kind of the idea as well. Um, and then so I applied for some – this is way back in 2019, I think now. Maybe even earlier, 2018 maybe. Can't remember now. Applied for some local government funding to have some sort of creative development for it and some rehearsed readings, and that was achieved. So we had some lovely creative development sessions with some actors um, and then had some rehearsed readings of it, which were very – successful and welcome and for, for me it was interesting because I had the rehearse, rehearse readings about a month apart two of them so in between that time I actually worked on the script before the next rehearse reading so um and and the audience was actually also asked for feedback so they were kind of given sign-up sheets and you know um box pop sheets and emails and things to actually let me know what they I liked about the thing what they didn't like about it what they hoped to see etc and I actually did take that advice on board to then go to the next stage of um, development, which was kind of like the first draft. And then we went to full production in March 2020 and we got through two shows before we were shut down. So then we basically just went on a hiatus. So, I, again, so as I said before, I used that whole kind of 2020 to go, okay, great, all right, well, if it can't go ahead, let's try and go ahead for next year. Well, I got on the VCE list and I um, got the seasonal at the Mama and I booked a whole lot of venues at Birriga and Ballarat and um, at the Potato Shed out at, 
on the Bellarine Peninsula and um, Warrnambool. And everything was set in place, of course, for 2021. And then 2021 happened. And... <laughs> I can I can remember now, you know what, going you know going to these venues and talking to the venue organisers and thinking, you know, and they're going, oh well, you know, if the, in the event of COVID still around next year, and all of us going, yeah, oh, as if that's going to happen, mm-hmm. we'll all be vaccinated by then. Oh, how hilarious! Anyway, so yeah, so so we got through three shows at La Mama, and then we got through uh, two shows at Geelong. So we got five shows in this year. So I guess that's what one hundred and fifty percent on last year. So. And did I say there was a radio play version of it in there somewhere as well? Yes, yes. So, so a fabulous company in Geelong called uh, Greater Geelong Creative Inc. have uh, got some funding to do some radio plays and they kindly offered to have uh, My Brilliant Career as one of those plays. So we used pretty much the same cast as the, as did the original readings uh, to go in and do, um, yeah, so that's, that's available as well. And, of course, that was also available for the students as well for this year who didn't get to see it in person at least they get to they can still read the script and they can still read the book and they can still listen to the um the radio play she says got more lives than a cat this play i love it my brilliant career by christine davy adapted from the novel by stella miles franklin my brilliant career is the story of sibylla melvin a girl growing to woman, growing to adventurer. This is the narrative of a burgeoning nation, a forming feminism, a woman coming into her own as a human, an artist and an independent thinker. My Brilliant Career is a tale of language, landscape and love set to the rhythm of a complicated national consciousness. The arts have been hit hard by COVID, and there's been a mix of adapting ways of working, as well as adapting expectations and mindsets. Like everybody in this industry, you know, none of us have been unaffected by this. I will go on the record, however, as saying that I completely agree with following the health message, and I completely agree with, with lockdowns when they're necessary and all those sorts of things. So I'm not one of these small businesses that is saying we should open up and let it rip, because I don't think we should. And that's Again, very personal reasons for that. I've, I've had cast members or crew members who are immunocompromised for, for whatever reason. I've had, you know, cast members who are who are undergoing or have just finished undergoing chemo. So I want to keep those people safe. And at the end of the day, it is just a play, you know, like kind of I think we really do have to work out what's important in life at this, in these situations and go, you know what, these, our priorities absolutely need to change. doesn't make it easy, though. It really makes it awful and hard and horrible in the fact that I spent the entirety pretty much of 2020, you know, planning this fabulous regional tour for my brilliant career and, you know, doing all sorts of wonderful things and got it on the VCA syllabus and machinations that I put into place. Every single one of them scrambled, you know, so which doesn't obviously doesn't just affect me. It affects every single person I've dealt with in this process. Well, yeah, this episode is about adaptation. So I did want to ask you about, um, and it sounds like with your PhD area as well, your thoughts on working across different art forms and, you know, oral to theatre to written and how they can interconnect and what they each can do as art forms. Well, yeah, well, this is my, so my first adaptation was, uh, Pride and Prejudice, which I did, uh, when was that, 20, oh, that was, that was pretty much in our first year of operation, 2015, um, and so I've done that. I've done Jane Eyre, My Brilliant Career. I'm working now on an adaptation of On the Beach, um, and I suppose one of the reasons I like adaptation, and, again, maybe this is also why I like kind of cross-platform stuff, is that... I just, I just like it. You know, it's like it's an interesting thing to do, um, particularly when kind of the original, obviously the original source material I think has to be good, otherwise you're just, you know, pushing it uphill. But when the original source material is, is good and it's still going to be resonating, I think, again, that's a good kind of clue for it. If you look at any of those things like Jane Eyre, Pride and Prejudice, On the Beach, they've still got sort of incredibly resonating themes for us now, you know, On the Beach particularly, like kind of um obviously sort of a little bit in the middle of that adaptation now and um, it's frightening how similar things are (laughs) to, um, you know, 1957 when that was written. What I like about the whole concept of of studying 
screenplay and playwriting is that, as I said before, I, I really think in lots of ways there's an interesting crossover that not many of us, including myself, are kind of taking advantage of. We have this idea, I think, that what goes on on, on stage can't, for some reason, ever go on on film. And, of course, it can and vice versa. And I think in lots of ways stage plays these days are becoming more filmic. They're becoming more reliant on, you know, elements of kind of media or projections or, you know, kind of soundscapes, those sorts of things. As creative practitioners, we just have to keep kind of evolving. That's 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 how we don't die. You know, that's how we don't, you know, that, that old saying of, you know, what's his name? Darwin didn't talk about the survival of the fittest. He talked about the survival of the most adaptable. How do we keep adapting and evolving as creative people? One thing that Davy did with her My Brilliant Career adaptation was bring in other famous Australian characters from Franklin's life, such as Henry Lawson, who helped to get My Brilliant Career published, and Vita Goldstein from the suffragist movement. Life is made up of little things. Life. Life. To lie on the moss and drink of the beauties of nature and revolution. Hello, Vida. Vida Goldstein ran for Parliament four times. Five? But who's counting? Never one. Mustn't grumble. Social reformer, magazine editor, fighter for women, ally. Adaptations allow for these sorts of expansions or creative liberties, sometimes exploring the lives of a book as well like in the recent film adaptation of Little Women by Greta Gerwig, where Alcott's experience of publishing the book was also woven into the story of the film. Adaptation is fraught but fun. I asked Christine a final question about the importance of regional theatre and touring. It's so important. I mean, it's kind of, it's, and and I'm sure you know this anyway, but it's like kind of, even in Geelong here, the vast majority of of, uh, stuff that we have at our Geelong Arts Centre is from somewhere else. And it, and I find it offensive. Like it's basically kind of like saying, "You're you people. None of you around here are good enough. We have to bring in something from outside." And and the whole kind of one of the kind of beautiful things about this tour is going to be, you know what? We're regional too. Like kind of, I'm very very cognizant of casting regional theatre makers in in all of the plays that we do. You know, we get regional theatre makers because they're good because they also understand the concept of work and they also understand the concept of regional theatre. Like it's a different thing. So it was going to be wonderful, like, to go and we were going to kind of, you know, smaller halls, not particularly in, you know, Birigara and places like that, and to kind of basically say to regional audiences, here's a regional product, I think it makes a difference. Um, And we're also, we just kind of know... I think because we're regional and because we don't always have state-of-the-art um, theatres to work in because, you know, I for one can't afford them, um, we're used to kind of going, okay, well, here's our set, here's our props, it all fits in a van, we'll see you at 11 o'clock and the show will we'll go on at 1. You know, like it's – I think we're very kind of much more adaptable because of that reason. Ballarat people, I think like Geelong people, like kind of – they seem to be a bit more practical about things, a bit more kind of, yep, yeah, where's, where's the work, let's do it, good. Yeah, so hopefully next year I'll be able to kind of give you. I can't. I've got news, but I can't give it to you right now because it's all embargo, embargoed. But it looks like that we'll be able to do something. Not not my brilliant career, but but something else um, as a regional tour for 2022. Exciting stuff from Skin of Our Teeth Theatre. Keep your eye on them, and big love to all the creative people working their butts off and hearts out to bring us essential art and stories. Support them wherever you can. Another one of these now, it's my pleasure to be joined by musician Gellaray Poor, then play her piece created specially for Gabba. How lucky are we? In preparation, I read lots of books about Iran, history, fiction, poetry, and memoir with Melody Moezi's The Rumi Prescription leading the way, structured around different themes of life such as wanting, isolation, and distraction, and connecting them to her learning Farsi and poetry with her Rumi-obsessed father. Just as in The Shape of Sound and Drawing Sibylla, there are questions of expression and communication, translation and adaptation. And I was struck by the Rumi quote, Better to be of the same heart than of the same tongue. This struck me as I connected with deaf artists in the Flow Festival and in thinking about the magic of art. Muezi states that in Persian, also known as Farsi, the word for poem, share, means song as well. By no coincidence, Rumi's classical Persian verse isn't meant to be read while sitting, but rather sung while spinning. 
I can also now imagine it being signed in a dance of the hands. But now together. I am Gela Rapor. I play Kiamanche, Persian spiked fiddle, and Beychak. These instruments are ancient instruments from Iran. And I've been playing this since I was seven. I also sing and I am a music instructor, composer, and I've done some research in music, mainly ethnomusicology in here. I describe it as a diasporic music because this is who I am. Uh, many people who live in Australia are having different backgrounds and so many musicians, even if they were born here, their parents were not born here. So they have a lot of different interests when they it comes to music and um, creations. So even when I sit next to another musicians, they do sound diasporic as well. And imagine when we have this sort of musical um, interaction, uh, I can only say diasporic, intercultural, contemporary Iranian-Australian. Yeah, this is how it sounds like. And it can be anything you can think of or none of the things that you are thinking it is. <laughs> um, just listen. I love Persian poetry, especially the modern Persian poetry, which uh, breaks the rules. That is something that always do that I always do in my music. Um, knowing uh, the traditions and uh, classical trainings, and exact knowing where the music is coming from, and knowing all the modes and everything is very important. So you know the classic form of poetry but then you and you can write that but then you decide to break it and do it another way and that way when you get out of those sometimes those forms are limiting to me um and i find when you get out of those forms and those like limiting structures you start amplifying more feelings and making deeper works so it, this is my interest in modern poetry, that it always amazes me how any time of my life that when I had a specific crisis or feelings, I could just go to these poetries and they kind of reflect because they're very flexible as well. Like you can just um, get whatever sort of meaning you want from them. There are many musicians who write their own lyrics. When I was back in Iran, I was very good with writing poems and stuff. But when I moved here, I haven't felt it yet. Hopefully one day I will. But because our poetry is very rich in Iran, I just I have too much of a resource <laughs> to even be worried about, oh my God, I'm running out of uh, poems to make things on. And thank God in Iran, poets believe that um, music brings more life to their work. So usually when you ask them, oh, what about the copyright and stuff? They're like, don't worry about it. Just make the music. Um, it's all good. So we just, we always um, credit them. But 
I got to the point that I don't have to ask them because every time I ask, they just said, don't even ask us. And, you know, it's just like imagine words, a lot of resource, music, and my love to visual art and imagination. So this, and more than that, place and people. These are the things that are gathering in the creation of one thing for me. And uh, this is all I think about. Sometimes I pick the poem on the stage um, with no preparations because I really like improvising. And picking the poem on the spot is another part of the improvisation because it just reflects to how I feel and what the audience um, in that venue are giving me. Sometimes I uh, do alter. Um, it's not like I pick a poem and it's 10 lines and I sing it all back to back. I alter a lot and I take what I like from it. So I'm very inspired by them. But sometimes I don't add things, but I take a lot of things out. And sometimes I emphasize some parts. My focus on uh, instrumentally is on Kamanche. Kamanche is a in English, they call it Persian spiked fiddle. It looks like a little cello that has a little um, spike under it. It sits on your lap or on your chair and uh, you turn the instrument um, around uh, to change your string. So, you know, on violin, you change, you move your right hand to change your string. Uh, with Kamanche, you turn the biggest part of the instrument, which is the instrument itself, just weird. But um, that's why it's called spite fiddle. This instrument has four strings. It um, traditionally had three silk strings, but after the creation of violin, you know, Kamanche is ancestor of violin. So the violin was built based on Kamanche with four strings, and then it came back to Iran. And Kamanche got inspired by violin again, and the fourth string was added to it. And the material of the strings was changed, like um, similar to violins. Um, This instrument has um, animal skin under its bridge, and that is why the sound of it is so much more earthy and nasal compared to violin. The piece I made um, was mainly played with that, um, using my pedals. Um, so it's a little bit electronic as well, with lots of pedals and loopings and some voice. And it is on a poetry by Sayyid Ali Salehi. The name was interesting because um, the poetry is to fall in love in winter, only to die before summer. And that's the problem with being in Southern Hemisphere because this poetry is written on Northern Hemisphere. So our winter and summers are are not the same. So I was just thinking, okay, if I translate this to to fall in love in, basically, it'll be February. So February is the beginning of winter in Iran. And then to die at the end of... um, what is it, summer, (laughs) again, it's not going to translate in Australia. (laughs) Uh, So Brian helped me with recording this song. Uh, Thank you, Brian. And uh, he also helped me to pick the name. It is called To Fall in Love in Winter, Only to Die Before Summer's End.
Thank you, Gela. How lucky we are to have you in Australia and in Ballarat. Well, it's been another amazing journey through books, creativity and ideas. And before we say goodbye, between lockdowns, I was able to drop into the independent bookstore on Skipton Street here in beautiful Ballarat and get the lowdown for you on this new model of supporting independent authors to get their books to readers. My name is Bradley Shaw. I'm the managing partner of the independent bookshop here in Ballarat and the managing partner of another business which publishes the books for the bookshop called Shoreline Publishing. And it all happens in this beautiful shop on Skipton Street. We can hear the traffic flowing past. It's the second day coming out of lockdown. It is the second day coming out of lockdown, thank goodness. Um, We are on Skipton Street. It's a wonderful uh, premise. It came about by fate. We were looking for an office for the, for the uh, publishing company. We wanted to get out of home. It was growing, been growing rapidly over the last two years. Uh, so COVID has had its benefits, unfortunately. And we were driving past here and we saw this beautiful building and uh, Hattie and the Wolf, who was around the corner, moving out to the, around the corner, um, used to have this shop. So we took it on and then we decided we're going to make it a bookshop as well. How would we use the space? That's what we decided. And we thought we'll make it a bookshop. And the bookshop has um, really taken on board, I think, a lot of people's perceptions of, of new authors, where books really come from um, and its simplicity of presenting them in a way that's not... Um, over-commercialised, I guess is the word, because retail um, and publishing have to be a commercial entity. They have to have a business sense that, um, you know, everyone's in it for the for the money. We're in it more for the message as well. We want people to know they're independent, they're new authors, and they're special authors who are trying to get their messages and stories out there, and they just want to help you know, get, and find new readers. That's all. Amazing. Yeah, it's such a unique setup, really, isn't it? It is, it is. And it's fun setting it up. You know, it's been really cool. Keeping it welcoming and uh, appealing, but also uh, presenting the books uh, in a way and making sure that the books have a good place uh, in the market. Uh, They are available to all all bookshops around Australia and um, New Zealand around the world, but... Uh, this exclusive entity and this exclusive design is, I guess, uh, just a stepping stone for that to be able to, you know, for other bookshops to see what they look like on a shelf, to see what people's appeal is. Mm, It's amazing what you're doing. You've got it all all going on from up here, upstairs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're surrounded by boxes of amazing books. Yes. And there's more coming. So Christmas time is going to be huge. Of it's going to be great. We're hopeful that um, it's been such a, a lag in the industry of retail. Um, and I say that on the whole general sense. But as a publisher, yes, we're in it for a business. But uh, as a bookstore, we're in it for the benefit of helping readers find our authors. That's the, that's the end goal. And that's what we want to create. And I think uh, Christmas and, and, and coming up to occasions and having opportunities for people to buy our books is exciting for us. It'll be our first Christmas. Uh, we weren't here. We moved in here in May. So, you know, uh, we haven't been here for a lot of the, and because of lockdown, we haven't had a lot of the ceremonial periods where we, we weren't here for Father's Day, Mother's Days, uh, Easter. So all these elements of the year we've missed, we're hopeful that Christmas will be something that the community and, 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 and town and online as well can buy our books and really uh, enjoy our writers, our authors. Would you want to show me downstairs where the shop is? Absolutely. Let's do it. <laughs> Thank you very much. So... Oh, it's such a beautiful little unique shop, isn't it? Here's Jodie. Hello. Well, one of Jodie's nobilities is her modesty. Um, you know, not just her beauty. So. But the, um, the design of the shop is her. There's nothing in here that, in fact, anything I touch, I get smacked on the hand with. It is her artistry, her, her personable touch. I think it's the, it's the look and feel, the rustic of it. Um, and I think the authenticity, because the way we wanted our books to be seen was not at high-end gloss and, you know, just keep them plain and simple and put them in an environment that complements that. You know, Jodie's done that really well. With, they're on trestle tables on old doors. I mean, oh, it's Yeah, it's the teamwork. So she's the architect of all our children's books. She coordinates the, the, um, the design of the books and such through the publishing company. But one of the things, too, that, that um, I hope the, well, your listeners will understand is we also support other self-published authors or other authors published by other companies Mm -hmm. it's about being independent that's what the store is called the independent bookstore because it's about being that independent brand we're not part of the big end commercial cycles and big you know mechanisms of publishing and retail we're a small independent helping small authors looking for a stepping stone 
Oh, it's so important. Mm. So yeah, tell, tell us about the mix. Like there's, there's so much going on in here. It's amazing. <laughs> well, yeah, where to start is right. Uh, these are local authors. Um, Winter in Ballarat by Liv Lorcan. Um, another one, these aren't our books published, but they're here and they're submitted. And as I say, they're put on display. Um, and these, of course, are our books that we've created. The other one is Splish Splash Splash is a local girl. She's in actually in high school in Ballarat, um, which is great. So um, Billy Cairns, he's a local author in Williamstown. Uh, comes to Ballarat, his daughter lives here. Uh, so again, there's a lot of personal elements of the books we choose and books we work with uh, for the authors as well. But yeah, the bottom core is, of course, hopefully having people read them and enjoy them. There's no point in having them look all nice on a bookshelf as much. And you were talking before about, yeah, the idea of a community, which you can feel mm. in this space and in your whole philosophy. Yeah, well, when people come in, they're a bit sort of puzzled. We have people come in and they ask if we have the new John Chrism or Stephen King book, yeah, right. which is fine. Like, you know, we're a bookshop. It's a, a fair assumption. But again, they also come in looking for independent books that we don't have yet that are published by other other companies and of course you know um, we take books as they're invited to us we don't actually go out and seek mm. books we're not actually trying to be building a big retail brand we want to keep it personable to our community as you say um, the community of writers that we have and we support um, are selected by us as publishers but also selected by us as retailers who we see the quality in their work the books have to have that respect and I'm very passionate about books having a, a quality um, and, and because you've got to respect it as a product, not just as a story, as a, as a person's um, art. Um, and it's important that it's showcased and, and presented. And people, when they come into the shop, are surprised that we've taken so much time and can care to help these authors you know, become uh, that, what's the word we call it, Jody? Um, reach their dreams, you know. Some of these stories are very personable. They're memoirs of stories of experiences mm. that a lot of these people have had. And, and big publishers won't take them unless you've got one million Facebook followers or you're a celebrity already. Mm. <laughs> you know, so, so the hard yards, you know, you, you, to write a book and become from zero to something, that's, that's a huge leap for a lot of people. And this is a, a great platform for them to, to have that step and to hopefully grow from there. A lot of these authors have uh, enjoyed the experience, have signed on with us for multiple books. So some of these are going to become series over the next two years. There'll be, you know, people come in here and get a whole, whole volume of the books and become a follower of that author. And that's exciting. Making mm. dreams come true. It's what we're trying to do, as corny as it is. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah. That's what we say here, that we're just, we're surrounded by people's dreams. And that's what makes it so great to come into work each day and put new books on the shelf um, as we put them out. Like, this is somebody's dream becoming a reality. So it's a great feeling. Oh, yeah, it's such a special thing to be able to do. Yeah. So obviously COVID has, you know, affected things along the way, mm. but you're hoping to have people in here for events and things absolutely we've got a uh, every weekend uh, up until christmas scheduling um we're looking to um have book signings we'll probably have one author in the morning and one in the afternoon just to try to consolidate because we've got a number of authors in melbourne um and local so we really want to help build that profile and build that i think as you say community awareness that that this is a place that people can meet other people and, and understand an artist or a writer or or a person and in a good space and and help them and um yeah be a part of that as well we're planning a lot of events um, and as permissible um, and as things hopefully sustain without more lockdowns and, and grow and people get more comfortable going out again and shopping, we're very optimistic of having you know a good service or good product to provide for people to enjoy. Fabulous. So, and yeah, it's a beautiful space which I can just imagine people mingling and meeting each other and yeah. discovering books. Thank you, dear listeners. It would mean the world to us if you'd leave a review on Apple iTunes or the like, or just drop us a line and say hi. You can find us Minerva's Books and Ideas on Facebook and Instagram or by email. And stay tuned for more on our accessibility work and a party in December to celebrate the first season of Gather and five years of Minerva's. We'd love to see you there maybe through screens, but we'll be together. This episode was produced by me, Amy Silamanis, with sound engineering by the amazing Dave Byrne. For links to all the books, music and awesomeness mentioned or to support the show, check out the show notes or the blog with extra images and things, including my video interview with Ramus McRae. See you for the final episode, themed collecting, very soon. It's like the inside of Amy's brain tipped out into the computer and coming out in sound waves. <laughs>